regardless of what these Christians may say about recognizing God's authority and God's rule, their words and their actions indicate a sense of superiority over what God has established as the set order for human conduct. And what they have done with their actions, even though they may pay lip service to him being Lord of all, in their actions what they have demonstrated is a rebellion over his rule, basically suggesting that their way of seeing things, their way of speaking is superior to what God has established in his law. It's for this reason that James in verse 7 tells them to submit to God. And then also in verse 10, he tells them to humble themselves before the Lord. And then in the verse 11, he just lays it bare saying that when anyone speaks evil against a brother, then they are making themselves a judge over the law. Now, isn't that arrogance? Now, here's my contention. What James has addressed thus far as it relates to uh, the conduct of these believers, what he is addressing is a pattern of speech and action that is contrary to the law of God that's clearly revealed in his word, but what they've done is in this pattern of behavior that is contrary to the law of God has become accepted as normal behavior. In other words, they, are, they don't have a problem with the contentions that are going on. So what, what they are doing in, their, in their, this pattern of behavior and this pattern of speech, which has been basically characteristic of the congregation, what James is making the case for is that this is nothing less than resistance to God and rebellion against him. And whether it is from their arrogance or whether the arrogance is itself what has emboldened their actions, whatever it is, the point is that this corporate action this corporate mindset, this pattern of behavior is nothing other than community arrogance or one could call it systemic arrogance. That the system of religion that they have become comfortable with has allowed them to speak and act in ways that are contrary to the law of God in which case they are claiming that their practice is superior to what God has revealed. Now, in our text, James addresses this arrogance from another angle. In other words, the arrogance that, are, that makes them comfortable in resisting and rebelling against the authority and the rule of God, it doesn't just remain there, but rather it, it feeds on other aspects of our, or it carries over, I should say, into other areas. And in particular, the area that, that, that James is addressing here, once we've become bold enough to resist what we know God says about our conduct and our speech, once we have set our authority over that, then we have basically relegated the authority of God to the sideline. 
So much so that the same people who think that it's okay to speak and act any way towards one another, regardless of what God's law says, they also now have, have entered into this area of arrogance where they, they, they assume themselves to be equal to God and his sovereignty. Because that's really what's at issue here in verses 13 through 16. James is addressing how their arrogance flies in the face of the sovereignty of God. And so what we'll do is look at how this arrogance can undermine what scripture teaches us about the sovereignty of God. And it's in subtle ways that they do this. But the scriptures teach us something about God being in control of all things. And so I would argue that there are three areas of God's sovereignty that, that, that seems to be undermined by human arrogance once we have put ourselves in the position of rebelling, resisting his rule and rebelling against his, or resisting his authority and rebelling against his rule. Three areas of God's sovereignty that, that our arrogance can, can lead us to undermine. God's sovereignty over time in general, God's sovereignty over the span of our individual lives in particular, and God's sovereignty over the outcome of horizontal events. So all three of these areas is what James challenges, but before we look at that, I want to I give some, some points of clarification, some points of some preliminary points of clarification and, and qualifications, because the verses here can be twisted to mean something they don't really mean. So here's, here's three points of qualification. Number one, James is not saying, with his rebukes in these verses, James is not saying that any planning and any preparation for the future is inherently arrogant and evil. He's not saying that. He's not saying, because it's easy to say, well, who do we know of what about tomorrow and we just have today and therefore we don't, we don't live for tomorrow. So James is not saying when what he says here about arrogance. He's not saying that planning for the future and he's not saying that, that any preparation for the future is itself inherently arrogant. So, so let's, let's be clear on that. Secondly, James is also not equating the Christian life as a morbid preoccupation with the fact of our mortality. No, so, so in other words, he says here in, in the text, he says, what is your life? It is but a mist that is here for a moment, and then it's gone. And so you can read that, like, whoa. <laughs> you know, you, you, look at the, you, you look at condensation on your, on your glasses or on the window in the morning, and then you, you blow on it, and it's gone. And say, whoa, that's what my life is? Woe is me. And so it's easy to have a fatalistic understanding of life if we mistake what James is saying here. He's not saying that your life is but a vapor so it doesn't matter so you may as well just be sad about it. No, that's not what he's saying. So that's a qualification. But here's a third one. It's also important that as we look at James' words here, that especially as it relates to verse 15, 
He says we shouldn't say what we're going to do. What we should say is if the Lord will, then we will do thus and such. Let me just say this. Please do not reduce what James says here to some little trite, empty, superstitious inscription that we put on, on, on what we want for our will and call it God's. In other words, don't, don't, let's not just say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm planning on doing this, that, and this. If the Lord wills, no, please do not reduce this powerful statement to a little bumper sticker in the same way that we do with saying grace, that all of a sudden it becomes whether or not you, and, and when we say grace, oftentimes, well, I don't want to, you know, generalize, but sometimes when it's in a public setting or when, when people gather and it's time to say grace, and I hate it when we force other people to say it, you know, especially at family gatherings, go ahead, say your grace. God is good. Is that really saying grace? <laughs> so we have, we have reduced, and, and that's why Paul says, listen, whether you say you're blessed, whether you bless the food or not, it's still blessed you receive it. And so it's easy to think that because we say grace, that somehow our food will be better. And it's easy to reduce this statement that, well, if the Lord wills, then we are recognizing that God is in control. And we can say those words and gut it of any real meaning. So those three warnings as we look at this, that that on the one hand, James is not forbidding Christians to plan and prepare for the future. On the other hand, James is also not equating the Christian life as this miserable, morbid experience where we're always conscious of the fact that any given moment we can die, so woe is me. But then James is also, what he does say in verse 15, should not be reduced to a hollow little phrase that we say, as we have done so many other Christian phrases, pray for me, brother, or uh, I'll pray for you. And sometimes we don't even remember the name or the need. Or I'm blessed, and I hate that. Pray, prayer is one thing because it can, we, it, we can just speak and, and we can pray sometimes without even opening our mouths. But the other one is, you know, oh, I'm blessed in the Lord, especially I'm blessed and highly favored. Isn't that true of everyone that calls upon the name of Jesus? And we reduce those phrases to mean basically nothing. So I hope that when we look at what James says in verse 15, that we don't reduce this as something that we can tack on to our own vision and therefore presuppose because we said if God wills, then we've either A, left ourselves in out, or we have somehow co-opted God into our vision. Now, with that in mind, with, with those things in mind, I would broadly contend that when we reach such a level of boldness and arrogance that we exert our will over God's will in shaping the proper pattern for our words, our thoughts, and our deeds, then we also presume that the sovereign God of the universe is somehow in our service and 
the goal of all of his activities is to make us happy rather than the end and the aim of all of his doing being for his own glory. Again, let me, let me repeat that thought that what, what, what James is, is, is confronting us with is that when we reach a level of boldness where we can resist the rule of God or the authority of God to rule and when we can rebel against God when it comes to how we speak about others, when it comes to how we interact with others, when we reach that level of boldness, that we, don't, that we can resist God's rule for our speech and for our conduct, then we have also reached an area of boldness and arrogance where we are the ones that, that we can presume that the sovereign God of the universe is actually in our service rather than us being in his and our happiness rather than his own glory is the aim and the end of all of his actions within the created order. Now, with that, let's look at the text. Three things that we'll consider, and then there is a point of summary. Here's the first thing. First off, in this passage, James challenges a mindset, a mindset that assumes, that makes certain assumptions about time in general. What he's challenging here is a mindset that makes certain assumptions about time in general. And the assumption is that time, it just exists and it exists. It's, it's really that, that we are in control. So where human calendars are more important and it minimizes the fact that time itself is a gift that is given by an eternal God who stands outside of time. So what we end up doing, that's what James is challenging here. Even though it's, the people are not just saying, oh, you know, time doesn't matter, time doesn't exist. Peter touches on this when he talks about the scoffers. He says, the scoffers say that Christ is not returning because of the delay. So they, they can't, the, the longer we keep saying the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, and he doesn't come, then the more we think he's not going to return. That's how we do with time. The assumption is because time has always been, ever since we've been here, that it will always be. My mother used to have a phrase where she would say when people start talking about what they're going to do in the future, she said, you act like you have tomorrow tied to a tree somewhere. And that's, that's the arrogance that James is confronting here. And in doing so, what they're, what they're doing is minimizing the fact that the God, the eternal God of the universe, who is the God of our salvation, is sovereign over every moment of time. So when he says, don't say, come and let us go, and tomorrow we'll do this and we'll stay there, like we already know. Just because it's, it's kind of like you, you, you learned this back in the day when people wrote checks. Just because you have checks, amen, I don't even need to finish, right? <laughs> 
checks don't mean money. So just because you have calendars don't mean you have time. And so what James is challenging here is an arrogance that has resulted from those who have established their rule and their law over God's rule and God's law. And now they stepped into a bigger arena where they make certain assumptions about time. Hold in mind as we say this, we're still not presupposing, we're not saying that Christians should not plan. We should have calendars. We should prepare. We should plan. But in planning, we know that all of our plans are subject, all of our, all of our plans that, that deal with time are subject to the rule of the God of time. And so James is challenging this, this, this presupposition or this, this mindset, this arrogance that has allowed people to speak of the future as if they can control it. And it's interesting the lengths that we go to in trying to control and predict the future. That's why until the Lord returns, there will always be places for astrologers and you know, and, and for tea leaf readers and palm readers. In fact, they oftentimes flourish when times are the worst. Because people want to know, as the Bible, the biblical question, how long, O oh Lord? But instead of asking God, they ask the tarot reader. So what James is challenging and what he's confronting is a mindset that makes assumptions about time in general. Ta make assumptions about time in general that minimizes the fact that the God with whom that uh, to whom we uh, we owe allegiance is an eternal God, and He is the ruler of the universe outside of time, and there is no moment, and there is no second that is not under his control. In fact, every moment of human experience has been ordered and established by the eternal God of the universe. I've been asked to speak at a conference next year and uh, on the topic of the sovereignty of God, so I've been kicking around different verses that I might want to, to look at, and this is one of the first ones that came to mind, that, that, that understanding the sovereignty of God over every moment of time. And so James says, when you boast about what you're going to do, you're acting as if you've got you already have it planned out. And we do this. We'll say, okay, by the time I'm 25, I'll do this. By the time I'm 30, and we have no guarantee of 25 or 30 or the outcomes. And so James is challenging a mindset that has, has been in, encouraged by its resistance to the authority of God and its rebellion against the, the rule of God to now arrogantly presuppose that time 
is under human control rather than under divine control. Here's the second thing. James challenges the arrogance of finite creatures speaking as definitively as they do about a future that they cannot control. He, he challenges the arrogance of finite creatures speaking so definitively about a future that they have no control over. Look at the way he words it in verse 13. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend, we'll spend a year there. And, and then just that whole mindset. And, then he, and so the arrogance of, of these statements are, be, are coming from a person that James says, your life is but a mist. You, you occupy the spot of a piece, of, of a, a drop of dew on your morning window. That's what you are against the big picture. He says, your life is but a mist. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. And his point is that just as we don't control time in general, you don't control even your own days. Because that also has been determined by someone other than you. We have become slaves to our time, our, what we call our, you know, my, my, my biological clock. Call it what you want. It's still under the control of God. And that's the point that James is making. That in your arrogance, you speak as if you can control something. You didn't even control the time in which you were born, let alone the time in which you were born. By that, what I mean, you didn't control the physical nature of your birth nor the existential circumstances when you were born. James is reminding his readers, in essence, that the God of time is not just the God of time in general, but he's the God of the time that has been allotted to you. Here's the third and final thing. James, that the arrogance that James speaks of here also undermines the sovereignty of God over the outcome of horizontal transactions. Going back again to verse 13, he says, you say come today and, uh, or tomorrow and we'll go into such and such a town. But notice what it says, go into such and such town, uh, a place, and then we'll trade and we'll make a profit. In other words, you're guaranteeing the event and the outcome. Rather than, and it's, again, it's not to say that we have to pray a little prayer and then hope that God will, will answer it in the right way. No, here's the idea. Rather than saying, let us go into such and such a place and conduct business in a manner that conforms to the revealed will of the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe, and we will trust him for the outcome. No, the arrogance of man that thinks that he can control time 
and who thinks that he is bigger than time and thinks that he can challenge the sovereignty of God also thinks that he can manipulate outcomes. Because we know that if we do it this way, then we guarantee outcome. But isn't it the Proverbs that says that man can cast the lots, but God determines the outcome? We know we talk about laws of nature and laws of physics. And yes, if you do this, that, and the other, there are formulas, there are patterns that we ought to follow in order to do certain things. But the end result is still in the hands of God. I know we should work hard. We should put forth the effort. We should do all of the right things. But the end result is still at the end of the day. It's not our brilliance. It's not our, it's not our sweat. It's God who gives the increase. And here's the hard thing for us to swallow on this side of heaven. The increase that God gives is not because of the righteousness of men. Because Jesus says he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. And the result of such rain is grain. And the result of such grain are those things that increase our labor and help us physically. And so just because we have a bigger pot of gold doesn't mean that we are bigger than the God of creation and the God of time. So we somehow forget that wherever we are at any given moment, yes, we can say from a human standpoint, and sometimes we can't even say that clearly. I was going to say that from a human standpoint, that wherever we are is because of the actions that we've taken. But that's not always true. Because sometimes we have taken the right course of action. Sometimes we've done everything right. We've done everything, I don't mean from a moral standpoint, but we've, we've dotted all of our I's, we've crossed all of our T's, and, our, and still our bank is not as big as our neighbor. And why? It's because we don't control the outcome of horizontal transactions. Nebuchadnezzar puts it this way. He says, when, when the Lord drove him into the field and he was, went insane for a period of time, and then when he came to his senses, then he says, he says, you are the sovereign Lord. You are the one. You raise kingdoms up and you bring them down. And so what James is challenging here is a presupposition of those who are arrogant enough to think that they can control time in general, and they are arrogant enough to think that they control their own destiny, and they're arrogant enough to think that they can control external circumstances, our horizontal transactions. And this is the boasting that James is calling sinful. Now let me offer this by way of summary. One of the functions of the original Sabbath and what we call the Lord's Day was to communicate and to convey to the people of God 
Now hold in mind, when we talk about the original Sabbath, I'm talking about the Sabbath, however many Sabbaths that Adam experienced before the fall, but especially the first Sabbath that Adam experienced. And the reason for that is because Adam was created on the sixth day. And Sabbath, which is a day of rest, is the seventh day. So Adam, before he goes to work, he has to rest. And the rest that Adam experiences before he goes to work was to convey to him as we should with the Lord's day for us. To convey to the people of God that just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and just as he has ordered the very moment and the circumstances of our birth and our rebirth in, 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 in Christ, just as God has ordered all of these things, just as he has ordered the means by which we would be brought into contact with the grace of Christ as communicated by someone faithful to the gospel message, he who has established the very place of our residence. I, I, every time I read that in Acts 17, it, it, it blows me away that he has determined the very place that we would live and when we would live there. He's not only placed, he has not only established the very place of our residence, but he knows every hair on our head. That is the God who dispenses from his hand every moment of our existence. And it is he that has set the moment of our termination. So take care of your bodies, take care of your good of health, but understand God is the one who, who from the very beginning determined when we would exist and how, where we would live. God is the one who has determined all of these things, but he has also set the moment of our termination. Hebrews 9, 27 says that it is appointed unto men once to die. And who does the appointing? It's the God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, here's what James is trying to drive home to them. That because it's God who stands outside of time and who governs time, who it is he that has, has given us every moment and the purpose that he has given us, this gift of life, which James says is but a mist. The purpose of this life is that each of us, on each day that we have been given, that our aim would be to live to his glory and to find enjoyment in his provisions. Enjoyment of him through enjoying the provisions that he's given us we, we demonstrate our affection towards him by living each moment and each day with the knowledge that has been given to us by God for his glory in our in engagements, in our interactions. It is for his glory. He is the one who has allowed us to see the beautiful sunrise so that beyond the sunrise, we would know 
of a greater sun and a greater rising of that sun. God has given us each moment and each day. He's connected us to brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and parents so that we would experience his love through those human channels that he's connected to us. The point is, we recognize every day that our daily bread has come from him. And I like the fact that Jesus in that petition in the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day. He doesn't say, okay, for this year, just give bread in general. No, each day we are to be mindful of God's present rule over all of human life and experience. And each day We are to recognize that whatever the termination point that God has placed on our lives, he's given me today. And today is a wonderful time to look past our pains and to rejoice in the fact that we are his today. That we belong to him. And as he has given us bread sufficient for the day, he's given us grace sufficient for the day. And there is nothing that we can experience in time that will overthrow or undermine his grace that he has established before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, I believe that the, the, the responsibility of, of the church when we gather is to raise the level of consciousness of God's people to the greater construct of time and recognize that time is what God has given to us so that we would come to know him so that we can enjoy him for eternal, for all eternity. James says, all such boasting is evil. When we take for granted the, that, that God is the, the one who is in control of time overall, when we overlook the fact that every moment that he has given to us is not a moment, it's not accident, it's not by accident that you're here. I know you heard, but it's still not by accident that you are here in this moment. It's not by accident that you are born. I know we love to speculate, if I had been born, I wish I was born back then. Or No, God chose your birth. And he's with you in every moment. And every moment that he grants to us is an opportunity for us to either glorify him in in determining the pattern for our speech and our action according to his rule and to enjoy him through the things that he's provided. He says, when you go into a city, don't say, don't, don't, don't look at your calendar and say, okay, this year we'll do this. Not in your anticipation and not in your, in your reluctance. But trust that 
that the God of the universe is aware of you and your circumstances. And so let your view of time be filtered through the knowledge of his sovereignty. and Lift up the circumstances of your life to the knowledge of his sovereignty and recognize that your good grades and your hard work is not the reason for the bread on your table because God is the one who controls the outcome. And he's given some more so that we can be mindful of those who have less And he's given some less so that they can recognize that their dependence is upon God through whatever means that he's appointed. But don't judge yourself or your circumstances as if you are sovereign over time. I think that's James' warning here. I think the sinful boasting that he's addressing is the boasting as if we control rather than we are subject to the God of time or the God of eternity who works in time. Don't boast, but let us say that if the Lord wills, then whatever he wills, and it's not that he's going to whisper a secret message into your ear, but as the Lord wills, then we will do thus and such because if the Lord doesn't will brothers and sisters you won't let's pray our God and our Father we come to you in the blessed name of our